Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from Dr. Benjamin Williams. My sermon is No Lasting City. 20 minutes drive from my previous church in South Carolina, just below Charlotte, lies a broad and barren tract of land. In the back corner, to the left stands a, I don't know, it's maybe four or five-story building in a contemporary style that has a, something, sort of a Polynesian flavor. I don't know. And in the front corner by the road, there's a, a stone Gothic, what looks like a stone Gothic style church and with a rock waterfall. It's called the City of Light. The only problem is there is no city. When the PTL network collapsed in the wake of the Jim Baker scandals, Morris Cerullo and his son David bought it out of bankruptcy and renamed it Inspiration Ministries. In 2003, he acquired 93 acres on the south outskirts of Charlotte, and he secured $5 million in public incentives and tax breaks in order to develop an elaborate sort of public-private complex with nonprofit and for-profit projects. It was to be a bold step of faith. They promised a $75 million investment which would generate hundreds of new jobs and more than $1 million in tax revenues every year for the county. The Inspiration Headquarters building with all the television studios was completed in 2008. And one year later, the International Prayer and Welcome Center housing a 400-seat chapel, a Christian bookstore, and a bistro were finished. And that ambitious 10-year plan then called for a conference center, a media training center for international interns, a concert pavilion for outdoor concerts, 550 condominium units, intended for more than a 1,000 residents, and its own shopping district. And then the dream butted headlong into reality. You know, one of those oops moments. Construction cost overruns, loan servicing, high price of infrastructure, drained Inspiration Ministries reserve funds, And so now, after 10 years, there are two buildings. The chapel is unused, 
The bookstore is closed. The bistro, which is now just a coffee bar for studio technicians, is struggling. The rest of the City of Light is a scraggly, treeless wasteland. It's not even, it, it won't even grow kudzu. It was an audacious dream, driven by overreaching and far too human ambition, and it has come to naught. And as I stood there and looked out across this barren, countryside there, I remembered, as the author of Hebrews would remind us in Hebrews 13, here we have no lasting city, but we're looking for the city which is to come. It's not the first time that an ambitious building project has run afoul of God's true intentions. I want to tell you another story. You know it, but you may never have looked at it this way. And I bet it's not the story you think I'm going to tell right now. If you would turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 17, we'll look at verse 1 through 6 and 10 through 14. Are we ready? Okay. Now when David settled in, in his house, David said to the prophet Nathan, I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan said to David, do all that you have in mind, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to live in, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought, is, brought out Israel to this very day, but I've lived in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? <coughs> Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to go be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish this throne forever. I'll be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. A little background. David has succeeded Saul, captured Jerusalem, and built 
a palace in his new capital. Now he wants to build a temple, a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant. At first, the prophet Nathan affirms his ambition, but then receives a revelation. David is not to build a house for the Lord, for the Lord does not need a permanent residence. He would rather travel freely among his people. But the Lord does promise him that his offspring, note that word, his offspring, will indeed build a house for God. And David figures that must mean Solomon. So what does David do next? Flip over a few pages to 1 Chronicles 21, verse 28, and then we'll go on to verse 22 and start with verse 1. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he made his sacrifices there. And then David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David gave orders to gather together the aliens who were residing in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great stores of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps, as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing, and cedar logs without number, for the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorified throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantities before his death. And then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay, now... God explicitly told David not to build a temple. That God in his good time will raise up an offspring from David who will build a house to the Lord. But David can't leave it alone. You know, he's got to get his fingers in there. He's got to help out God. He doesn't trust God to do it, and he doesn't trust Solomon to do it either. David goes out. He picks and purchases a site. He conscripts stonemasons and carpenters to prepare the blocks and the beams, and he collects iron and bronze for construction. He has architect's plans drawn up. He has all the vessels designed, and he goes ahead and has them cast. So all the furniture is already ready to go, just waiting in storage. 
He cannot trust God to do the right thing. Instead, he, David, is compelled to lay the groundwork to make sure everything happens according to his, David's, specifications and expectations. Now, God, while God says that he's quite content to reveal his glory in a tent, that's not good enough for David. The house, he says, the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorified throughout all the lands. Do you hear what David is saying there? It's not the Lord's glory he's concerned about, because the Lord's glory can be revealed in a tent. This house isn't really about the glory of God. It's about the glory of David and the fledgling nation of Israel. Build something great for God so the nations will see how great we are. You see, even committed men and women of God are not immune from our humanity. There's a wonderful little story from the third century AD that I quote from time to time about two of the monks, hermits from the desert, who are talking about dying with Christ in their daily walk. You know, what, in, what they always called the mortification of the flesh. But it's dying with Christ and letting that, that self-centered life die. And they get in an argument, and one of them is arguing with the other and saying, I'm deader than you. <laughs> you see, we can become proud about anything, even our humility. Whatever we do for the Lord, whatever we do for the Lord... It's always, 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 always going to be driven by, at best, mixed motives. That's our human dilemma. And the greater our plans are for God, the more likely there is going to be self-serving pride mixed in. Do you hear me? That's just what we do. So, Daddy brings in Solomon. Daddy tells him to build a house for God. He shows him the plans. He's already got the materials and the furnishings all lined up. So that, that Solomon builds the temple is a foregone conclusion. Here's the story in 1 Kings chapter 5. 1 Kings chapter 5. Verses 2 through 5, and then we'll jump over chapter 6, and starting at verse 11. I'm jumping around simply because it's such a long passage. So, Solomon sent word to Hiram, that's king of Tyre, Hiram, saying, You know that my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God, 
because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to my father David, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Now, 6.11, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning the house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes, obey my ordinances, and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will establish my promise with you, which I made to your father David. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. So Solomon moves forward with David's plans. And that little fact that God didn't ask for it and really didn't even want a permanent facility, did you notice that got left out? You know, he doesn't say, my father David did not build the temple because the Lord told him somebody else would build the temple and not to do it. No. He says, it was because of all the warfare. He had other stuff going on. Hmm. And then Solomon says, point blank, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord. And then when God speaks to Solomon... God confirms it is indeed the house that you are building. It's not the house I'm building. It's not the house we are building. It's not the house I told you to build. It is the house you are building. Concerning the house that you are building. And you'd think when, when God says that, concerning the house that you are building, that he would then have something to say about the house, right? Well, obviously not. Because he says, concerning the house that you are building, if you, you know, walk in my commandments and obey my statutes and, and on and on and on, then, and you think, okay, then he's going to say, then I will dwell in this house and make my presence known here. No, that's not what he says. He says, then I'll confirm the promise that I made to your father David. And I will dwell among my people in the midst of my... I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Period. Period. If Solomon, if the leader will heed and obey the word, God will confirm his promise and will be faithful to his people. Which is to say, God will honor the temple as long as, and only as long as, he and the people honor the word of God. God did not ask for a temple with unflinching conviction, David and Solomon set themselves to build a temple 
and not just a, a temple, but one overlaid with gold and dressed in silver, a magnificent and glorious edifice. They intend to do a great work for God and don't even recognize that they may be driven less by their faithful obedience and their humility than by their own ambition and pride. David, David wants to create a lasting legacy forever. Solomon, he wants to build an empire, a legacy, an empire, a city of light. God lets him build a temple. He even honors Solomon's prayer to bless this sacred place and let his name dwell there. But as history shows, God clearly never had an inviolable bond to the building. When that, the stench of Israel's sins overly fouled the pure air of heaven, the Almighty withdrew from the most holy place. He left. The prophet Ezekiel watched him go, waved as he disappeared over the mountains. And then he gave it over to be burned by the Babylonians. The moral of the story, a humble and holy heart matters more to God than a holy place every time. You hear that? A humble and holy heart matters more to God than a holy place every time. Well, Dr. Benjamin, this isn't what we heard about the, the temple. Isn't this a, a little heretical or something? Well, not really. Fast forward a thousand years. Oh, I'm sorry. If you, do, didn't, if you don't remember VCRs, you won't understand fast-forwarding, will you? <laughs> For those of you with, who know only DVDs, they'll say, what's that? Well, it's, it's something where you go, and then you end up, you know, a thousand years down the road. Okay? Fast-forward a thousand years. The young firebrand preacher and brand-new deacon named Stephen is accused by the leaders of the synagogue of the freedmen of speaking blasphemous words against the law and the Jerusalem temple. That was the charge. And he rises to defend himself against the accusations. And after recalling a whole litany of Israel's unfaithfulness and sins, well, Let's read his closing arguments in the book of Acts, chapter 7. Acts 7. And we'll start, it too is a long speech. I'm going to start at verse 44. Acts 7, 44. And Stephen says, Our ancestors 
had the tent of testimony in the wilderness as God directed when he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our ancestors in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors. And it was there until the time of David, who found favor with God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit, just as your ancestors used to do. Wow. What is Stephen saying there? What is Stephen saying? That when Solomon built the temple, brick and mortar, he was once more resisting God who does not live in a house made with hands. That is what enraged his hearers to the point of lynching him on the spot. They understand exactly what he's saying and they murder him right there. But didn't God tell David his son Solomon would build him a temple? Well, not quite. God said David's offspring would build him a temple. And the gospel is consistently clear that the offspring of Abraham who brings the blessings of salvation to all the nations the offspring of David who fulfills the hope of salvation and all the promises of God is Jesus Christ. In Nathan's prophecy to David that we just read, did you notice that God specifically says that the son who will build a temple to the Lord will sit over his kingdom forever? I think three or four times in there it emphasizes forever, forever. And there is only one forever king, and that's Jesus. And he builds a holy temple not made with hands. No grand empire for God. No lasting legacy by earthly standards. But he builds a heavenly temple which is created in sacrificial humility and made of the hearts of faithful people. That was what God wanted all along. That is a temple where God wants to live. 
That's the temple. And that's what Nathan prophesied. Now, even before I arrived at KPC, I had been warned about the City of Hope and the confusion and the rancor that still reverberated through this congregation in its aftermath. There's a lot of speculation still rumbling around about what happened to it and why. And there's, there's suspicion about the role that church leaders played in it at its end. And I'm going to get to that part of it in another week or two. But I found, I found that the more I heard about it, the more I remembered standing there at the entrance to the International Prayer and Welcome Center, surveying the desolate fields surrounding the City of Light. It is no coincidence that the City of Hope drama unfolded at the same time as the City of Light. Maybe, I don't know if it was something in the air or something in the water, or something over the airwaves, but there were all over this country mega projects that failed at the same time. Of course, you won't read about those. The problem is, pastor, I'm going to throw this in just on the side. Pastors keep reading. We keep reading these books on church growth and, and mega churches and how to build your church into a. There are books on that, how to do it, how to, with checklists and things like that. The only problem is the ones who, who, start, who are running churches that fail, that don't become mega churches, don't write books. We need to read both books, but they don't write them. So pastors and church leaders get a false notion of what's involved and how it works and what they can expect on the way. So what happened here? I don't have a lot of time. I will keep it mercifully short. It started with a perceived need. There were at least 1,400 members, overflow crowds uh, at at least three, some weeks, five worship services. And KPC found itself at a point, it had a choice to make. It either had to create a number of outlier campuses or it had to build uh, a much larger sanctuary, more classrooms, lots more parking. So there was a choice, multiply or expand, spread out or build up. And Pastor Nate in the session began looking for a suitable property sufficient for such an enormous edifice and parking. A modest dream, but it already contained within itself the seed 
of a grand empire. In retrospect, we know it was the wrong choice. Then enter the real estate agents who had the perfect property. It was a farm coming on the market for the first time. It would be a good mixed-use location. The city of Virginia Beach was even planning, they were told, planning to build a municipal facility right next door. You only had to have the city change the zoning from agricultural to commercial slash residential. And at first it was a few acres, enough for a large facility, plenty of parking. But then, well, you know, if just a little more money, you could get these 50 acres where you'd have room to expand, and a little more money, and you'd have 500 acres. Bit by bit, the dream got bigger and bigger and bigger. Ever more and more irresistible. Developers were brought in with plans for a grand complex with, oh, I don't know, cul-de-sac housing developments, upscale commercial areas. There were going to be condo units, I think, in there. And the idea was the lots could be sold to pay for the entire project. Church would get the, the land, its land and the new building and everything free and clear. It was an audacious plan, a bold dream, a leap of faith. And they started thinking like David. The house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorified throughout all lands. A great thing for God, a city of light, a city of hope. Unfortunately, it was the tasty but indigestible fruit of human pride. Because all of our best motives are always mixed. And the greater the thing we do for God, the more likely there's pride mixed in. And then comes this part. The realtors required that all parties had to sign non-disclosure documents. Now normally... This means that you just don't divulge the names of the people, other people who were involved in the negotiations to protect the identities. But the church leaders were specifically given to understand that this meant they could not discuss any of the negotiations with anyone outside the session or the pastor and the closest staff. In violation both of the EPC Book of Order and of nonprofit law, session deliberations were kept secret and sealed. And let me say this not to hide things from the congregation. It was never intended to hide things from the congregation, but to fulfill what they thought was a contractual obligation to complete confidentiality. Now, when I heard about that, that's when my red flags went up. Because the land deal was, in short, 
a scam. It was a scam. There were problems that the realtors were supposed to, were even legally required to divulge, but never did divulge to the session or its agents. Not until it was all a done deal. Namely, for example, that part of the property were EPA-protected wetlands. Namely, that development was precluded not by Virginia Beach zoning, but by federal jurisdiction as a designated military crash zone. That the land was being sold on speculation. That the Navy airstrips that flanked it might be moved to North Carolina. And that to an environmentally sensitive wildlife protection uh, area, uh, uh, protection district, and bird rookery. And that wasn't going to happen. And that if it had happened and Oceana had moved, think with me, that would have crashed the property values and left such a glut of empty homes that the Brown Farm property would have been worthless. Oh, and that municipal facility that the city was going to build next door was a landfill. And none of that was told to the buyers, to KPC in the session. All of that was kept hidden until it was over. It was never, ever a truly viable project. And so KPC suddenly found itself with an unpayable debt and a vast tract of unusable land. Now, a scam requires three things. That's why I say this. It requires three things. First, you, you find a mark who wants something so badly they cannot and will not ask questions or walk away from the table. And you sell them a dream. Second, you start negotiating within their comfort zone, then add a carrot and raise the stakes. Add a carrot and raise the stakes until the mark is committed far beyond what they ever intended to do. And third, you isolate your mark so that they talk to no one and they hear no dissenting voices until the only voice they're hearing is yours. And the City of Hope met all three requirements. The church and its leaders were inexperienced with this kind of thing and probably were naive. Even more, they were trusting. They didn't know the hard questions to ask. They didn't check behind and do their due diligence. And so they were conned. Now, didn't anyone wonder if it sounded too good? 
Didn't anything feel off? Well, yes, there were. And yet, this is where, as I'm seeing, some bad theology comes in. Bad theology. I've been told that this never actually came up in session meeting, but I have found it in private emails and inter-office memos. That is maintaining a positive confession. How many of you have ever heard of maintaining a positive confession? Most of you are nodding and too embarrassed to raise your hands. It's something that we just, you know, those of us who were, came in in the charismatic renewal, we grew up with it. It's a residue of the old word of faith and that kind of thing where you have a positive confession. You avoid a negative, any doubts, any questions. That's all a negative confession and it's destructive to your faith and it expresses your unbelief. And so... No one wanted to say anything because they wanted to maintain. They wanted to believe it would happen. And to believe it would happen, you have to maintain what? A positive confession. Does that make sense now? I mean, I'm just looking back historically. I'm not asking theologically. Theologically, it doesn't really make sense. But looking back in our experience... In the charismatic renewal, you can say, oh, oh, yes. Oh, yes, I understand it now. So to hold a positive confession of unwavering faith in God's miraculous providence, many, many individuals suppressed their doubts and their questions. The City of Light, City of Hope, Temple of Solomon... All were ultimately a product of human pride, of overweening ambition, however well intended at first. And it was part of the quest to create an everlasting legacy and a grand empire to the glory of God. But God does not dwell in grand gestures and mighty empires. He lives and moves among humble people in the most humble surroundings. He moves from place to place, and every place he touches becomes sacred space, and as he moves and moves and moves, eventually every place becomes sacred space. God allowed Solomon to complete David's building. And God blessed it, but only as long as the people honored the covenant with God. He allowed Inspiration Ministries to get started so they would at least have their studio building, but now they're stuck with this big tract of land that they can't really do anything with. He did not allow KPC to start its building. Just imagine what would have happened if you had had a building on a tract of land you could not possibly pay for and you couldn't do anything with. For, for that, 
you really should be grateful. Are you grateful? I know it was, I'm sure it was tough at the time and it was disappointing, but thank God he stopped you before you cut your own throat. It was all well intended, but it was poorly conceived and probably standing back looking at it, it was a little too self-aggrandizing and God will not share his glory with anyone. And there was mercy in it, though. You know God was in it because there was mercy in it. At the last minute, I think it was two days before the absolute final deadline, just before the loan was going to be called, and KPC would have lost all of its assets, meaning this building, this property, and everything it had, and would have ceased to exist. With two days to go, the city of Virginia Beach bought the property. You see, God provided. Yes, there were losses. I'll talk about that at another time. But God provided. The losses that what you did lose, you could bear. There are losses that could have happened you could not have borne. That much you could bear. God provided. And you know, God will chasten us for our sins. But his faithfulness and his steadfast love will not make an end of us. He will not make an end of you. There's always grace. Always grace. Here we have no lasting city. That's okay but we're looking for the city that is to come. You see, you and I are nomads on this earth, ever moving from place to place, really without a permanent home. God, I think God has put a restlessness in our souls, and either we, we will wander aimlessly without God, not knowing where we're going or why, or we will wander purposefully with God. Life on this earth is temporary. I know that may be news to some of you. It's temporary. And the longer you live, the shorter it gets. The longer you live, the shorter life gets. God has blessed that temporariness. It's not a surprise to God. He has purposed it. He has blessed it. And he prefers, he himself prefers a tent. God would rather have a mobile home. As he moves among his people, here and there and over there and there and in neighborhoods from place to place. So here, we build no lasting legacy except a succession of lives touched and transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Here we construct no grand edifice except a heavenly temple composed of you and me, all living stones built into a spiritual house to be revealed at the dawn of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we admit these are hard words, hard words to speak and hard words to hear. But Lord, use these words to heal our hearts. Heal the broken spirits. Clear away clouds of confusion and questionings so that we as a church can move forward no longer angry or fearful or burdened by the past, but grateful for the purposes of grace and God's perfect planning, grateful for the lessons we have finally learned from our own experience, and grateful for the future you still have ahead of us that we can be a people marked above all by thankfulness, by hopefulness, and by joy. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.